Tyler, I presume it was enjoyable for you as well. I don't want to speak for you. I hated every minute of this. Yeah. All right. I, that's what I guess. There's, this, but, you know, I there's the disagreement we were waiting for. <laughs> Man. You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Worship Review, the podcast that critically but charitably analyzes the songs that we all sing in church as Christians. I am co-host of this podcast, Colin, a history professor at a research university in the Midwest. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tyler. I'm Tyler. Tyler. Hi, it's going pretty well. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, you know, I... I could be better, actually, but on the whole, things are all right. Yeah. I'm sleepy. You could certainly look better. I know. Well, that that is an ever-present problem that I have to deal with, <laughs> Tyler. Fortunately, our listeners never have to deal with that problem, audio-only podcast. But uh, not as usual, but as is usual for this series that we're doing now with guest hosts, we have a third host, Stephen Henning from the Ravel podcast. He is also host of the No Normal People, and that's K-N-O-W, Normal People podcast. He lives in Billings, Montana in the United States, works as a piping draftsman, and uh, also at a local refinery in Yellowstone Valley. He is also uh, a freelance podcast producer and editor uh, and uh, is an avid Dungeons and Dragons player, as indeed one of the co-hosts of this podcast is as well. And the other, I guess, does it for kicks, I suppose, but isn't always excited about it. And yeah, uh, also has uh, some useful experience and opinions uh, with worship music. So we wanted to interview him. Stephen, how are you doing today? I am very well, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on today. Yeah, and actually, I just wanted to start off by saying, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, your background, uh, your religious background and kind of your journey. I'd love to hear that. I'm sure the listeners would too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I grew up in a Christian home my entire life. I grew up um, very much plugged into Sunday school settings, uh, doing the Wednesday night Awana, for those of us who are familiar with the, the program. Um, Bible memory verses, getting those little treasure chests and <clears throat> jewels, right? Yeah, absolutely. All about the sword drills, like filling out those <laughs> sparky crowns. Uh, yeah. I was all into it. So um, yeah, I just grew up in the church. My family was uh, just kind of a house full of musicians from a very early age for me. My dad grew up like through high school playing drums. So I grew up in a house with a drum set. Um, so you can imagine a four and five year old is probably pretty interested in making a lot of noise. And I, I was, and I started learning drums pretty much at that point. Um, so growing up in the church, like it just felt natural to start using, uh, musical talents, musical gifts through the church, like playing for youth groups and then eventually starting to play for larger, larger congregations and all that. Um, m- my, my background is heavily, I like to say that we were kind of, um, we were secret Baptists. It was a non-denominational Bible, like Bible church. Um, but the theology was very, very, uh, not Southern Baptist, but I don't really know how to parse that still, but, um, yeah, that's kind of the background I have, um, up until now. So. Were you a worship leader as well as such? I mean, if we can use that term. I was. So pretty quickly in the youth group days, I graduated from just playing drums because somebody discovered that I could sing as well. Because I I grew up like singing in choirs, um, whether that be through the homeschool co-op or eventually when I went to public school for high school, I joined Mm -hmm. choir and was doing musicals and all that. Um, I've always loved to sing. It was just kind of natural to sing along with things on the radio or singing in church as it were. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think it was probably sophomore year of high school. I started, um, I picked up the guitar. I learned the four same chords we all learn, right? And yeah, then I got to have those four chords. You know, <laughs> C, A minor, <laughs> F, and G. That's right. If you know three majors and one minor and own a capo, yeah. you're really set yeah. for anything. There you go. Yeah. A capo for our listeners, capo doster, it's this little clip you can put on the guitar and you can slide it up the frets 
and increases the it changes the the pitch that you're playing at so you can play in any key as long as you put the cape on the right place just for the the non musician listeners guitar player yeah this is this is good context i appreciate that um yeah so in high school started i picked up the guitar learned my chords and was pretty much off to the races kind of standing up in the middle of the stage and uh, leading the songs, um, like leading small youth group congregations through prayers between songs, anything like that, facilitating like communion moments. So you, as uh, even as a high schooler, were involved in uh, facilitating kind of the liturgy of the of the church and saying, um, you know, now we're going to do X and Y or something like that. Yeah, uh, in in the church I grew up in, it was. Um, it was on the worship leader who was kind of doing most of the, the singing and the leading of the melodies to kind of say, all right, next up, we're going to have, you know, the associate pastor up for announcements. Right. And then everyone would sit down. And then when we'd come back, we would say like, would you stand again with us while we continue to worship, um, pray before the pastor comes up after the pastor has preached, come back up, you know, facilitate kind of explaining this is how communion works for those of us who are new um, or haven't done it before. So, yeah. Tyler, have you ever been in a church like that? I know you spend a lot of time in churches with where maybe the pastor does all of that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was in some churches like that for a brief period of time um, in kind of late middle school era. Um, and I, I will tell you one place where I've seen that a lot is... Um, in a group called Young Life, have you ever heard of this? Young Life. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So, uh, for listeners who don't know, it's a it's an evangelistic mission t- targeted at high schoolers, where they they create these youth groups in the high schools themselves, and they meet. And so that's kind of a it's a very low church kind of let's um, get together, very very charismatic friendly um, worship service. Uh, even I mean I would even say it's kind of a worship service what they're doing. Uh, even though they they don't have a, a minister present always, so um, I've seen that. And then actually, even in some of the more, um, let's see, I guess in Presbyterian churches that I've been that were not, um, I guess super duper committed to the regulative principle, they they were also somewhat like that, where the worship leader took on additional responsibilities. And said, you know, I mean, some of it's moderator responsibilities, like, uh, the next thing we are going to do is communion. And you'll notice there are dark pink cups and clear cups, and the dark pink cups contain alcohol. Um, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, I mean, this is Presbyterian, so it has to be, everything has to be very dry and, and detailed. But, <laughs> um, uh, Stephen, I'm kind of curious. Is You said you took on, um, this kind of mantle. Do you think that's something that, um, you were prepared to do or looking back, is that something that you feel like uh, you probably weren't in a position to do? I think when it started, it was, um, it was more opportunism in the sense of, oh, oh, this kid knows how to play instruments sometimes better than some of the adults that were trying to volunteer. Um, that's my humble brag, I guess. I don't know what that- <laughs> No, sure. Sure. We do that all the time. Yeah. Um, so it definitely started from more of a musicianship, musicianship standpoint. And then, uh, as I kind of like learned the ropes, I guess I, I had some more dedicated time with, like with my youth pastor and eventually with the, uh, the senior pastor at the church, like we studied, I think it was, it was kind of like a Bible study, but it was more like, I guess a book study we did, um, Oh gosh, it's Matt Redman's book. It's a little book that's like five inches tall. I think it was the unquenchable worshiper that we studied of his. Um, yeah, which had a lot more to do with like what that spiritual role like meant to that church um, to kind of like, uh, I, I guess in a sense, the the way some churches will set up what they call a worship pastor in that sense. But that felt, I don't want to say it felt more like an afterthought, but it definitely came far later than my involvement did from a musicianship side of things. You have, as we talked about in the introduction, you have day jobs, you're, you're an artist, you're a podcast, uh, producer as well. And obviously, uh, a content creator. Um, how does your 
faith and what you've experienced in the church inform what you do, whether we're talking about your day job or or the art that you create, the podcast? I mean, how how do those areas of your life interact? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, in the in the sense of the day job, I really think of my role um, in whatever I'm asked to shoulder as responsibility um, at the refinery, right? So I work for a drafting and design firm. So it's a lot of AutoCAD. It's a lot of desk work where we're uh, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's on construction drawings. Um, essentially, we make the instruction books for the uh, the refinery to go build stuff. Um, it's high stakes Legos is what it's called. We do the instructions for high stakes Legos. Um, and I think the way my faith informs my role there is very much in this, like leadership skills, certainly that I've picked up from being involved in churches pretty much my entire life. Um, but also just that sense of excellence, you know, like, uh, Christians will, will talk about how, um, uh, like being different in the culture in some meaningful way um, serves as some form of witness. I, yeah, I, I really um, internalized a number of years ago, just that idea of excellence. Like what I, what I set my hands to, I do with excellence. Um, and I do it with a sense of humility as well. Like, so sh- sure we can fill out like a roles and responsibilities, give me the exact tasks I need to get done. But um, at the end of the day, uh, I, I just feel like my main job is just to make the lives of the engineers I work with easier, right? Like however I can do that, however I can, um, make their lives easier, bring some positivity to a, a pretty high stakes and sometimes very tense, uh, work environment. So, um, in the sense of podcasting and kind of the art from music to, yeah, creating content, like you said, uh, so Ravel, is the the actually the second podcast I ever started. Ravel is kind of an exploration of Christian theology from a number of different viewpoints. So um, coming from growing up where I did in churches that I did, uh, I, I have experienced some evolution in my theological opinions, right? Um, and I just am obsessed with talking about it with people who <laughs> want to listen and who want to like push back or bring new ideas that I hadn't thought of. So with my co-hosts, Josh and Emily, um, we every week just show up. One of us is in charge of bringing the next topic. It's kind of like a round table discussion format. Um, so one of us is in charge of bringing a topic. The other two have no idea what it is. And then we just spend an hour just, um, seeing what happens when we pull on that initial thread um, and that's why we use the the metaphor of ravel, right? You think of like right. a, a, a thread uh, knitted through a sweater, right? What happens when I pull this thread and see how many things are actually connected to it? Um, I think it's a gentler metaphor. I'm sure you guys are familiar with like the idea of theological deconstruction as it's kind of can be kind of a buzzword out on the internet. So uh, we find the metaphor of raveling to be, a lot more gentle. It feels a lot less destructive. Um, and it leaves us with the idea that we have, um, some raw materials still to work with when we're done. Like whether you pull the sweater all the way back and it's no longer a sweater, you still have a ball of yarn to do something with. Right. And that's kind of where I think, uh, my, like as faith evolves, like I still have something to play with. I'm, I truly believe I will always be captured by the person of Jesus Christ. And I like, I just can't imagine a world that I ever become non-Christian in any meaningful way, just because I'm so captured by uh, the words he had for us, the lessons he had for us and the example he brought Um, of course, as well as the, uh, the actual act of uh, suffering a crucifixion and rising again for it. So um, that's, uh, that's the Ravel project. Um, for my first podcast I ever started, I was telling Tyler this before we started recording, is called No Normal People. Um, essentially, the short pitch for it is it's like Humans of New York, but a podcast in Montana. Um, so we will interview people you I can promise you've never heard of, um, but these people are also passionate about things. And I think everyone is worthy um, to be able to share their stories and share what has meant 
um, all the good in their lives and all the bad things in their lives. We'll have stories of wives losing husbands suddenly, right? And that it set, certainly sets the tone for the episode, but we learn a lot about grief. We learn a lot about what it means to like move forward from that. And sometimes it's a fun episode where we're just talking about video games and Dungeons and Dragons, as you mentioned in my intro too. Um, so No Normal People started as a way to feature people you've never heard of, but also I, I love the idea of giving, not necessarily, it, it's like a, a venue for non-famous people, right? To get to share their story um, in the sense of, you know, there's, there's hundreds of podcasts out there that will interview all the same artists and thought leaders and uh, authors that put out a book. And if you hear one of those interviews, you hear all yeah. of them pretty much because they're on the media mm-hmm. tour, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I wanted to provide something different and I hadn't heard of a podcast like that. So of course that's where that comes from. Um, and then the, it's like no normal people 2.0 is how I think of it. I started the Highline Media Network, which is essentially podcasting for normal people in normal places, um, which my co-host on Ravel, Josh, just pointed out that, that it's kind of a very Protestant ethic to bring to podcasting when you think of um, Luther has his 95 theses of very specific opinions on what the church is getting wrong and why scripture belongs in the hands of laity and not just uh, n- not just the uh, the clergy. And in my opinion, like, uh, you know, we're all making business decisions. We have iHeartRadios and Spotify's out there and signing the huge names that we all recognize. Um, but I like the idea of bringing podcasting back to simple RSS people talking about what they're passionate about and they don't need to be the, uh, yeah, the big brand names that you see on TVs and you see on billboards and all the rest. So Steven, I have so much to say in response to all of that. (laughs) Uh, and it's really funny that you mentioned the Protestantism, uh, there at the end, because when you were describing how your faith informs your work, I was thinking, well, it sounds like he's describing the Protestant work ethic without naming it. You said, oh, yeah, I believe in excellence and viewing my work as a kind of, uh, I think you said testimony maybe or witness sure, uh, to yeah. other people. Um, would you say that you have a Protestant work ethic? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. yeah. I I like to think that we, we call the Protestant work ethic the, uh, call it the healthy version of like the toxic like hustle culture. Right. Hmm. Um, I, I've learned, uh, certainly in the last few years as the pandemic has taught a lot of us, the value of rest and, um, avoiding burnout and all these things is like, uh, it's easy to overschedule myself just because I like to get excited about many, many, many things. So I think that work ethic has also like, uh, matured in the sense that it's, it's taught me the, the value of margin and boundaries and, downtime to goof off, take the dog for a walk, play D and D, which is so separate from the high stakes of the refinery or the, the mundane like details of editing another podcast. Right. Can I ask, it sounds like both of your podcast projects are going to be personal. Like, like there's like the things that you're going to talk about any given week are going to have stakes attached in terms of, you know, core values that the people on those podcasts would hold. Um, do you guys disagree much and how do you guys handle disagreements on, on, on both of those podcasts? So on no normal people, the way I think of it, cause my wife and I co-host that and, uh, clearly as any, you're going to run into in any partnership or any marriage, um, you're going to have different opinions even there. So I think her and I approaching even co-hosting, has been a fun exploration of the way we handle disagreements, even in the creative mm-hmm. process, right? We have different ideas about how the intro should go or how we should rewrite the, uh, the mid roll mm-hmm. music or something like that. Um, with our guests, I tend to think of it as like, I'm not here to do the gotcha journalism or have someone on mm-hmm. that, you know, if I disagree, it, I, and if I feel like it's necessary to say, quote unquote on the air. Um, I'll, I'll do it in like the most gracious way I can and really 
mm-hmm. I don't feel pressured to dwell on it. Cause really that's not what I want my guests to think is going to happen. Like I'm going to invite you on my show. I want to showcase you. I want to talk about your childhood and what you studied in college and what you do for work and what you're passionate mm-hmm. about. And if I do too much pushback, I just feel like I'm just kind of betraying their trust in a sense. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is just asking, um, questions that continue to tease out the, the nuance of, you know, if they have a particular political opinion that I don't like, we'll, we'll dwell on it. But in the sense of like, I'll continue to ask questions to really try and find maybe where we can find common ground or something like that. But that happens so rarely, to be honest. Um, I, I very much like to chase down the areas that we have in common, or even if we don't have in common, I know just enough that I can fake some knowledge in the the topic so I can keep them talking about it and keep them excited about it. Um, in Ravel, it's, uh, it's been a, an interesting process. I don't know if you two are familiar or give any weight to the, uh, the personality system, the Enneagram or if We're fr- I'm familiar with familiar it, Tyler, with it. are you? Yeah, sure. Um, so my, my fellow co-hosts, Josh and Emily, both find themselves as nines on the Enneagram and I'm a okay. one. So like they're next door neighbor. Um, but we're all pretty conflict avoidant people, if I'm being honest. Um, so where we're exploring, I think we'll, we'll come to moments of like, huh, I've never thought of it that way. I don't think I agree. And then we just, and then the the topic just kind of takes on its next point. Um, it's not too confrontational by any means, but we've also learned that, um, that, I mean, if we're being honest, that does make for some pretty good podcasting to have people dis- the the regular co-hosts disagreeing. Um, oh yeah, I've I've even found that refreshing when you guys will give different ratings to a song, um, sure. whether we come out with like a three or a five. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I find that refreshing that we all don't feel the pressure of like landing in lockstep every time, right? Yeah. I wish we did more of that on our podcast, Tyler. That I think that's one of our impetus for getting uh, guests on and ideally from perspectives that are as different from us as possible because, I, I don't know, Tyler, what you think, but we just agree too much. It's that, you know, I think it's more interesting when we don't. I don't know. What do you think? I disagree, Colin. I disagree. <laughs> yes. Perfect setup. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's hard. I, I have to think even on Ravel, um, you guys, I, I like your image. Uh, I think it's illustrative of pulling on the thread of the of the sweater. But still, all three of you are coming to the sweater ready to pull on threads rather than to put it on, right? So there is right. some sense which, um, yeah, even if you disagree, you're, you are kind of like-minded on, on that. Mm-hmm. Um on that front and as far as our show goes colin i don't know maybe uh i think maybe we need a charismatic like in, in the um church uh a churchy sense charismatic because well yeah. obviously maybe even in the grander sense uh the cultural sense charismatic neither of us is very charismatic but if we could get uh a charismatic capital c lady host uh i think our charismatic show charismatic karen uh, oh, Ooh. I don't know about that. <laughs> or, or do you, have you ever heard of a um, a Kyle? You know the a Kyle. It's, Is that it's the like, male version of the Karen? No, it's like a precursor to the Karen. It's a a millennial who like uh, when do you remember when they stormed Area Fifty One a few years ago? Oh wow, that seems a, like so long ago. <laughs> the Kyles were the guys who went there with like their corn T shirts on, yeah, and corn yeah, okay. and their Monster Energy drinks. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, Steven, I, I was thinking your, um, your description of no normal people sounded a lot like sociolinguistic interviews. So, so linguists will go Whoa. out into a, um, community and say they want to describe the speech of this community, mm-hmm. um, for a long time, even up into the, you know, mid to late 20th century, it was really common that you would just have like, a guy from England or a guy from the United States and he would go to a village in rural Mexico and then he would just describe the language there. And so uh, that has its, um, that has its usefulness of course. But the, the downside to that is that it doesn't always acknowledge the perspective that the <laughs> researcher has. Right. Right. And so, uh, there have been many more instances of people going into a community, um, getting to know people 
and then um, they just put a microphone in front of somebody and then they they just communicate with them and hmm. um, they get data that way they get research that way and so oftentimes when you're doing research on this you're just listening to some like rural peasant talk about his brother and and you know you don't know this guy but all of a sudden there's like a human being behind all of this linguistic data that you're digging for yeah and so you know the the researcher doesn't know the brother so the researcher says you know well, what did you do today? I went up, uh, and my brother and I, we played a game with a ball. Oh, what's your brother's name? Oh, his name's Stefan. Well, what does he like to do? And then they kind of lead them into a conversation. So yeah. it, whether or not you realize it, you guys are doing uh, research on that show, I think. Fascinating. Well, now I need you to listen to a handful of episodes and see what you can learn about the uh, <laughs> linguistics of uh, South Central Montana, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be very interested. And there are some uh, some linguistic traits uh, that you could find in the Western U.S. But, oh, I'm sure. Um, I was wondering, uh, sorry to play the definition game, but I was Please. wondering, after you described it, if you would consider your podcast, um, uh, Humans of New York in Rural Montana, um, um, if you would consider it podcasting populism or not. Because it sounds like a very populistic enterprise. Interesting. Anti-elitist enterprise. I don't think I had put the uh, the word populist to it before, but I can see where you're coming from. If anything, that probably informs a lot of how I am learning to kind of steer the Highline Media Network in general. Um, like even talking to people who uh, want to develop a show. Like I'm, I'm so, I'm podcast nerd to the max, right? I think... Currently, I am subscribed to 112 feeds or something like that. Some of those are defunct. Some of them are old. I just like to revisit them from time to time. But I listen to an insane amount of podcasts every day because I have the tremendous freedom of listening to what I want to while I'm at the desk at work at the refinery. Um, so for for years before I ever started my own, I think I have probably sampled a good 300, 400 shows. Um, so I kind of... I, I suppose I would say I know what makes a good podcast and what doesn't. Um, and I think the barrier to entry to make, uh, to check all the boxes on what makes a good podcast is so much lower than, as you said, the elites might think, right? Um, yeah. Or even the, how the common man might think. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's not as hard to do something well as uh, people might think. Absolutely. I'm going to have to think about that for a while. I, I like, I kind of like that. <laughs> I'm going to put it in my notebook, make sure I don't lose that one. Um, so I also have a definitional question that I think will steer us back to um, discussion of worship, which of course is what, what we deal with and really excited to get some of your takes on yeah. what we might call worship music. And I guess maybe that's my first question is when we talk about worship music, hmm. what, what does that mean to you? I've had a changing relationship with what worship music means to me over the last few years. Um, uh, having left the church I grew up in when I moved cities, um, my wife and I found ourselves at a, uh, a mega church, to be frank. So we, we found ourselves at a mega church that was, um, it was kind of like, it very much had like that minimalistic warehouse vibe, right? Like the concrete floors, pretty sparse. Um, but it was all about that, that main sanctuary area where we're going to have the, uh, the black stage with the black curtains and we have the, the instruments up there lights. We had the full, we had the, we had the fog machine. Um, uh, we never graduated into lasers. I think they were getting that yes. as my wife and I lasers were starting too? to find our feet outside the door more and more, um, which really just like the final nail in the coffin of kind of transitioning out of that church was a ton of burnout. She and I had served on the team for uh, five years um, on and off, but mostly on either in volunteer or fully paid staff um, uh, credentials um, as part of the worship team, like leading the worship team. Um, and it was, it was a ton of burnout that we didn't feel like acknowledging as actual fatigue or actual burnout. Um, and I think the, uh, the pandemic was kind of like the final thing that made that transition, 
happened for us because we started attending church online, right? Sitting in our living room in the, uh, the scariest times of lockdown. It felt like all the magic had just been like sucked out of the worship music for us when we weren't the ones on the line for being up on stage and having the energy that we're supposed to like, we, we felt like we were supposed to be giving the congregation, right? Um, kind of watching worship happen from a satellite location even was like, huh, the, the further and further we got away from being on stage and helping facilitate worship music, the more and more, of course, it started to look more like a concert to us. Can I ask, because there's two things going on there, right? The one is you're not in person and the other is you're not the one facilitating it. Do you know which one of those was the driving force behind this change in I think it was probably the in-person aspect, if I'm honest. Like, if I can attend my church online, which is a fantastic technology, right? Like, more power to Zoom for helping keep the world connected when it felt like we were very disconnected. Um, it's It's a powerful technology even to have a conversation like this, but for a a setting at church where, you know, we're trying to attend church, sitting in our living room, we're watching kind of like the worship concert happen. And we're also thinking like, I mean, I could get this on YouTube anytime I want. (laughs) I think that really kind of, um, left us kind of a lingering sense of like, Oh, well, if this is the case, (laughs) right. And we're not going to be going back to in person for quite a while. Um, I think it was just, kind of a feeling of disillusionment with that. Yeah. Um, so I guess I would say with all my experience of facilitating worship music, being a musician, I think to get back to your main question, Colin, of like what that phrase means to me, I think, um, it's, it's music that allows us to facilitate a mood or an atmosphere. Um, I very much appreciated your guest, uh, David from the Goldsmith Odyssey, where, um, he did some talking about that very much resonated with me where right now, if I want to sit myself down for, um, like a worshipful moment, even in my own house at this point, very often it's, it's going to be music without lyrics anymore. That just kind of helps set a mood. Like, my wife and I love playing music around the house with our Bluetooth speaker. And it's a lot of like, like if you're familiar with like lo-fi beats girl on YouTube, that playlist, like it just helps create kind of like a, a peaceful, um, chill atmosphere. And I think if we're being honest, that's what music is being asked to do in a church, um, as well as, uh, facilitate kind of, you know, if you want a mood shift, you start a slower BPM song, maybe that starts on the the four or the five. Um, and that just, yeah, sets you up for kind of a different, um, yeah, different mood, feeling, atmosphere. I keep returning to those words, but that's kind of what, how even uh, worship leaders like to talk about that when they do, we'll do, we'll do a church conference, like a staff conference or something like that. And a lot of it is talking about uh, what we called at our last church, like the worship experience, right? We never called it a service, but it was the worship experience. And that started from the first thing the band played to the last thing the band played. And those were the bookends to a sermon, to announcements, to communion every once in a while, all those kind of things. Now, it's funny that you brought up David, because I was thinking about David as you were talking, because he was distinguishing between the music. He spent more time talking about the music actually probably than we have in the cumulative uh, collection of podcasts that we've done. And you've also brought up music. So, and you talked about, and I, I got the impression that you were talking about the music, not even necessarily the words, although how, how much do you distinguish between, so when we're talking about setting a mood or creating an experience or an atmosphere, um, are the, are the words, you know, if we bring the words in as well, is, is that all that the words are doing? Do you feel that they're doing something in addition to that? I mean, how do you, are you differentiating much between words and, you know, instrumentation, I guess we might say when you're talking about, when you're answering that question or, yeah, how do you think about those two elements of worship? 
Yeah. I, I think in the sense I was just speaking about it, I think I'm very purely talking about like the chord progression helps set a mood uh-huh. or the, the choices the drummer is making will change almost everything, right? You, you go to play a Chris Tomlin song, but you ride the floor Tom the whole time. That song feels completely different than if the drummer is playing like cross stick on the hi-hat with some rim shots or something. If like you play Oceans and then suddenly bust out a big drum solo in the middle of it. That was... Mm-hmm. Totally different song. Oh, I listened to your guys' episode <laughs> on Oceans and <laughs> I, I honestly was unfamiliar with that video with the drum solo. <laughs> oh, you hadn't seen it. Oh, did you go watch the video? Um, I did go watch the video after that. Yeah, it, you gotta see the video. I, it, just, oh. it just left me um, in a not great feeling of awe i was just like <laughs> as as a somewhat coherent person how did you think that was appropriate <laughs> <laughs> but but i think as we said on the show what was so f- fascinating about that was that he was breaking norms that he didn't seem to know existed that were unspoken and i think a lot of those norms are things that you're even talking about now with talking about the the music and facilitating the mood. And I, I couldn't help but think this, and um, I'm sorry, this is a little bit uh, off offhand, but um, the word for tuning for an instrument and the word for the mood in a room uh, or the atmosphere in a room is the same in German. You say Stimmung. And I was thinking, oh yeah, so something like uh, the Stimmung is off. The, the kind of vibe is off. But it's also a word for tune, and these are kind of intertwined. Um, so I was wondering if you you um, could clarify a little bit more um, what you felt like your role as a, a kind of mood controller was as the uh, worship leader. Ooh. I think I think at this point when I'm talking about my experience as worship leading, I'm very much drawing on my experience at the mega church that I was previously a part of. I I think a lot of the things I'm about to have opinions on. Um, were not true of the church I grew up at. I think that was a that w- that felt like a very um, maybe authentic is the word, but that makes it sound like nothing that was happening at the mega church was authentic either, which I also don't think is true. Um, it just felt a lot more unpolished, but in a um, like a homey, comfortable way. I guess if that makes Organic. sense. Yeah. Yeah, sure. We never had a spotlight at that church, right? Like there were st- there were stained glass along both sides of the sanctuary. Um and most of the lighting came from that on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I think with words the uh my my relationship to worship music especially the words um became more important the more and more I spent at the mega church. Um I think uh, just by the nature of the beast, right? It's it's kind of this top-down structure where the the core team in the in the state where the the pastor is actually preaching gets to make the decisions on all the programming, and we we just kind of show up and uh, reinforce, right? Like we have the songs to play, certainly, but um, you know, it comes time for the pastor uh, for the sermon, and the big projector comes down, and now we're watching a video of him being simulcast from the other city. Um, but the, the more and more I was involved in facilitating worship and not having really any say on the songs that we were being asked to sing, the, the more and more I started, uh, just kind of like finding moments in the lyrics where I'm like, Ooh, I'm not sure I agree with that anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Right. And I think, I think the hardest part for me and, um, what really drove me like stepping down from the worship team, even before we ended up fully transitioning out of that church was that sense of, um, I started to feel as if, and this is no, no one's fault, really. They were choosing the music that they felt led to because they were actually talking to the pastor and getting to figure out how songs were going to line up and what mood they wanted to create with the sermon. But I started being asked to sing songs that I just didn't agree with. But also there's this, like you were saying, Tyler, this, this unspoken assumption that I was still going to get it up there and do it with energy and do it with some level of excitement because that's kind of 
the concert vibe we're going for. Right. And it started, uh, causing some, some splits in my spirit in the sense of like, I was starting to lead worship that I was feeling like I was lying to the people in the congregation at the same time. And that was, that was really hard, you know, whether, I mean, we, we can, um, get down to individual lyrics if we want to, but, um, I am generally skeptical of a lot of things. I don't know if you prefer to beep this or not, cause I'm going to name drop a church, but, um, no, go I'm ahead. generally skeptical of things that come out of Bethel in Redding, California. Sure. Um, especially when the, uh, the lyrical content starts shifting away from, uh, more worship of like declaring to myself and declaring to the people around me in the congregation at large, like, uh, the attributes of God that we find beautiful or compelling in a song. And the song is a lot more about like, I'm going to believe in a miracle and we're going to talk a lot mm-hmm. about miracles. Um, and then you read mm-hmm. heartbreaking stories of the whole church trying to pray for God to raise a child from the dead. Um, right. And you're just, you're sitting with that. It's like, I see, I see what you're, I really see what you're trying to do. Um, but our, our view of God is different enough and you're creating the music um, that is different enough from uh, how I think miracles work nowadays or ever worked, then I, I just, it's hard for me to kind of, um, hitch my wagon to that particular horse, even if it's, um, even if it doesn't feel like, well, I mean, I wasn't the one who made the decision to sing that song. That was the choice of the core team. And I'm just here to be the guitar and the voice. Right. Um, yeah, that just started feeling icky i guess so just for listeners sake uh we've done six songs by bethel on the podcast raise a hallelujah got an average of one goodness of god got an average of two lion and the lamb got an average of two it is well got an average of one uh, and you make me brave got an average of two and no longer slaves got an average of two and so i think Stephen, we could say with you we are statistically also uh, critical of Bethel, but I don't think I came in Oof. with that. Um, like that wasn't something that we came in predisposed to, but I think sure. we would just we would happen to agree with you. Yeah. Um, on that, I was wondering what degree of your uh, frustration at that point was due to um, the the lyrical content of the music that you were singing. Uh, and what degree of the frustration you were feeling was due to the alienation that it sounds like you felt Ooh. from the decision-making process? Because mm. I think at one point you even said the people making these decisions were in a different state. Is that right? Not in our case. Um, they're in a city, yeah, a different city uh, that's like an eight-hour drive from us. But still, um, that's significant. If a, you but, know, If the pastor certainly. doesn't even see the people he's preaching to uh, and the people yeah. don't see him in person... Which is, which is of course the, the argument they'll try to make about why, you know, this guy is so blessed to be able to put a talk together, right? The Christian Ted talk of the week. Um, he's, he's a gifted communicator and we think we should celebrate that. And why don't, why don't we let him do the work and let the campus pastors be like the, the shepherding type people who are like leading the small groups and all that. But if we're being honest, that's just like how they franchise McDonald's too. Yes. Um, yeah, it is. You're, you've got <laughs> yes. it. And you, frankly, I don't think you can divorce the shepherding role of the pastor nope. from the preaching role nope. of the pastor. I so, agree. Nope. Yeah. I've, it's dangerous to do so actually. Yeah, I have come to agree that with that wholeheartedly. Cause there was a time we were going to this church and we were all in as they would say, right? Like we were bought in, we were excited about what the project was. Um, always a big deal to do like a baptism week. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's plenty we could talk about, about how church numbers might not all be, be all that accurate, but, um, yeah, I think that disempowerment of feeling like I, yeah, I just don't feel listened to. Like if I have an opinion on a Bethel song, it's like, okay, sorry, sorry. You feel that way. Yeah, do you set it to HR? It, yeah, exactly. And if anything, it was the HR was someone who was going to be like, well, 
okay, but we're going to do it this way anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's the, and that's hard to hear from someone who has been engaged in, uh, being a band of musicians, being a band of Christians together, right? Like feeling like you're, you're all, um, united in a common vision of like, let's, let's bring a group of people into a sincere moment of worshiping God. And when a lot of those aspects start disappearing, I think we, uh, we, the church at large become guilty of very much starting to blur the line between performance and praise for the worship leader in ways that almost never get spoken about, but it's like, here we are, we have the lights, we have the sound machine. Um, we'll do rehearsals where we're like, literally practicing the moments we're going to do the extemporaneous singing over a soft instrumental and all that. Oh, so you rehearsed all that. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I don't, and it sounds like you've got a very different uh, perspective on this, uh, me this mega church. It actually sounds like more like a giga church. It sounds like it was super big. Like a mega church <laughs> to me would be like a church with, you know, a thousand people and one kind of celebrity ish pastor. But a giga oh. church is where you have a super duper celebrity who live streams his face. Multiple campuses. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but no, I just invented that term. I don't think that that's a really. I can uh, I but, can appreciate <laughs> that though yeah but it sounds like you you have a different perspective on your your mega church experience than you did on the church that you uh, started leading worship in um, sounds like you have a more favorable disposition toward the more organic genuine seeming worship that you had there mm -hmm. but I would contend and of course you feel free to disagree with me this is your story not mine <laughs> it, I would contend that there's some element of um, the uh, confusion of praise and performance, even in what you described from that first church. Now, bear with me now. Forgive me if that's uh, too harsh. Um, but you mentioned when you talked about learning to lead worship and beginning to lead the worship, that a lot of it was driven by your talent as a musician and not uh, other, maybe more spiritual factors. Hmm. Um, do you think that that's a kind of precursor? This is a leading question, forgive me. But do you <laughs> think that's a kind of precursor to that kind of uh, conflation of performance and praise that you have later on? I think it certainly could be. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, for, for a young person who is gifted with musical talents, um, what I, what I truly respect like the capital C church for is for thousands of years, it's been a place for young musicians to learn their craft. Um, so like it, that it's really hard for me to like draw a line somewhere in there because I, I love the opportunity of giving, uh, a late middle schooler, early high schooler, a chance to like play music in front of people. I mean, um, sure school band is one thing uh, but very often it doesn't give you the rock band feel which takes you straight into the performance aspect of like i feel like i'm part of a rock band who gets to get up here we're the only people facing that way in the room everyone else is facing the other way um and uh the physical elevation of the stage can do things to your ego that if you're not prepared for uh can certainly inflate it pretty quickly which definitely happened to me. I don't want to say that I was immune to that. Um, I, I think that's something that sense of pride has always, uh, stuck with me my whole life just because, um, I being, being good at music, I'm good at, I, I like to have people look at me and smile and I like to make people feel good about it. Right. Um, which I'm, it's, it's part of the podcasting work I do too. Like the audacity of me assuming anyone wants to listen to what I say. Right. Um, <laughs> but again, I'm kind of used to it. Uh, but also like, I don't think that should discourage anyone from making a podcast or becoming a musician and playing in church. I think it's, um, I think what it would, what it might take is just a church who does the work to prepare, maybe not a, I don't know if curriculum is the right word, but like prepare a path for, for kids who want to get involved and for volunteers who want to get involved. Um, yeah, just because it, it can get very sticky very quickly with how it makes you feel, feel the rock star energy. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not good for a worship leader to be a rock star, but you also, in some of your comments, you talked about, uh, the decision-making process. Like you seem, you, you, I got the impression that part of what was not fulfilling about your megachurch experience was 
not being in the decision-making process. So being a worship leader for you sounds like it's more than just being a musician. How would you, what does it mean to be, to, to be a worship leader? What are some of the, um, how would you describe that role both in kind of a formal sense, but also in terms of some of the unspoken or informal sense? What, what is a worship leader? Yeah. Oh man, that's a tough or one. What, sh- what should a worship leader be? Maybe is a better question. Yeah. It would, man, I'm so tempted to just tell you everything I think a worship leader should not be. Um, well, <laughs> sometimes that's easier, right? <clears throat> yeah, that that might be a start. I think just that element of the, uh, yeah, the concert, the rock star thing is is something that's just often not prepared in people's minds or in people's spirits to like get up there and start doing that. I think in the sense of like what, what a worship leader is called to do, um, in my mind is just all about the facilitation, right? It's, it's bringing the excellence of your excellence, sorry. It's bringing the excellence of your craft, um, before someone more as a gift than as a, like, I'm not, I'm not the gift of God to the church. And maybe I am in a sense, but like, if, if ever that sense of like, this church would not be as good without me. If that sense creeps into what I'm doing, I've lost the plot completely. Like if I can be here as a gift in, in the sense of humility, um, I've practiced, I've rehearsed, I know what I'm doing and, um, you know, prepared, prepared the heart, prepared the spirit in a way that can come and say like, I'm going to have, a moment with God right now. And I would invite you to join me, you know? Um, I think churches should be honest about whether they want the worship leader to be more of a worship pastor or just the musician, or like Tyler said, maybe you're just the moderator who's saying what is coming next. I think all of those are okay. I just often think that the worship leader is never explicitly told which version of that they're being asked to be. They're just said like they're just told get up there and hear all the things that like stack on top of it with no real preparation or no real discussion with um, leadership in a meaningful way of saying like, Hey, this is a big deal. Like, um, like, I don't know if a worship leader necessarily needs to be put on the same level of, I think it's the, the book of James, um, talking about how teachers will be judged. Yeah, sure. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if a worship leader is necessarily on that level. Um, in the sense that James is concerned about that, like in a, in a corporate church or corporate worship setting. Um, but certainly there, there, there has to be something about, Hey, my, we, we, as a church, we hold these, whether that be like a statement of beliefs, right. State statement of doctrine or something like that. And, um, if, if you as a worship leader ever find that you are struggling with something on that or struggling with things, you're, uh, you are being asked to sing, being asked to lead, being asked to say, um, we would prefer a conversation about that before hurt feelings start happening or, um, you're ever tempted just to start like speaking badly about the experience, right? I would hope it could be a lot more um, full of dialogue about where we are as human beings. And if we're struggling, we, we're going to be comfortable with maybe the music takes a step down for a while. Maybe the music gets a lot simpler for a few months while somebody takes a break, sabbatical. Um, but prioritizing the person behind the guitar or keyboard or drums or bass or organ, <laughs> however you want to set that up. Um, yeah. Just understanding that the worship leader uh, doesn't deserve, you know, doesn't deserve to be on the pedestal necessarily, um, but they're being asked to, and that's a really fine line to dance. What direction would you like to see church music take? Where, where should we be going um, as Christians you know, obviously maybe the pandemic might influence that, but maybe not. Maybe just some of what we've talked about <laughs> would influence that. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think 
Um, I personally, I'm just entering a phase of my life where I would prefer, um, more tradition in my time of worship or liturgy, however you want to call that. Like, give me a good hymn every once in a while. Don't, I don't necessarily need to have the latest hill song or elevation worship, um, with, uh, though calling it elevation worship feels weird anymore because Stephen Furtick himself is writing most of it. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I, I love a dose of tradition in there with a hymn. I think that, um, that kind of equalizes a lot of people who are going to be at the church, right? If it's the rock and roll church all the time, don't be surprised when your demographics start seeing ages 40 and 50 kind of drop off and find other churches. Um, I, sometimes that's as practical as you're hurting their hearing because the room is concrete and you're loud. Which is unfortunate because those people are, you know, I've been in churches which, you know, where the oldest person in the church was 35 or 40. And I've been in churches where, you know, there was a healthy number of older folks and boy, do I prefer the church with the older folks. You know, they, they bring so much wisdom to a church congregation and you do not want the worship music to scare those folks away. Yeah. Agreed. So my wife and I, when we were going to the giga church, cause I like that term, Tyler, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> um, when we were, or franchise church is yeah. another word for Mick it. Church. Yeah. There you go. Um, when we were going to that church, we met who is now like, we met a couple that we started leading a, a marriage small group with because my wife and I had only been married for three years and we met our dear friends who had been married for 30 um, at this church. And we started a small group where we like, we literally shared dinner and then shared uh, Eucharist together. We did a study. We talked about marriage. Um, honestly, like the best small group experience I've ever had. Um, and they eventually left that church for numerous reasons Um, but they are still who we consider like our marriage mentors. We still meet up once a month. We go out for a donut or whatever, and we'll, we'll spend like a good four hours just kind of catching up and, uh, discussing where we are in our marriage and in our lives. And, um, I would not trade that relationship for the world, but they were the oldest people at that church. And when they left, (laughs) it, it shifted the, the atmosphere as it were at the church quite a bit, um, in a way that did not serve the church very well. So I completely agree with you. I think the wellspring of wisdom that, uh, age can bring, um, is worth it. And sometimes if it's simply calmer music or music that they are familiar with that keeps them there, um, that might be a good reason to start incorporating that because I think, a diversity in age, diversity in, um, you know, positions in the community at large or within the church. Uh, I just don't see how the church would not benefit from that. Um, so yeah, I think that's the main thing I would like to see church music go is I think even if, even if us millennials and Gen Z could start capturing hymns, uh, in a cool way or whatever, like, I don't know, just like there are so many good lyrics out there that we are, that we've left in the hymnals that are sitting pretty idle under some, some pews and under some chairs, just because we think that it's boring to have someone play piano and just give us all the notes and we sing them. Um, so I, I honestly really like that. And honestly, there's probably a connection to, to the church I grew up at in the sense of like, there's some, some simplicity to this, right? There's no spotlights. We're here. We're just, we're going to sing the song. And sometimes that church was guilty of like the frozen chosen, right? Yeah, sure. Um, like the, the reformed church who everyone's just standing there with hands in their pockets while we're trying to have a moment. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think bring back some tradition and I think I think there just needs to be more communication amongst, uh, members of clergy, you know, leadership at churches and with their worship staff about like what the expectations are. I think that was, that was a huge thing that that we even emailed back and forth on as we were setting the date for this is there's so much unspoken things that go on for a worship leader. And I think if we're just being honest about 
you know, how music helps us set a mood, right? Like the songs you choose for good Friday are going to be different than the songs you choose for Easter and for good reason. Um, yeah, but saying that explicitly and getting everyone on the same page, I think is very important. Also, I think it would be great if churches would be more honest about how, especially the big name churches, like you think about Hillsong, right? Like that, their music department is a major income stream for that organization <laughs> between tours, uh, records that they put their they pump out all the time, or even just all the copyright payments that every other church sends in every Sunday morning for playing all their greatest hits. So that might be a discussion for another day, but the, the whole industry around church music is yeah. Wild. Yeah. I mean, nobody gets paid when you sing, uh, be yeah. thou my vision. No. You know what yeah. I mean? You don't put a dollar in anybody's <laughs> pocket. Um, yeah. You mentioned when uh, the pandemic was kind of in its, uh, I don't know, throes that you decided you would stop attending this church. Did you return to a church ever um, after that? It's, it's been a while, actually. I think um, my wife and I were kind of in a space. She's immunocompromised for a number of reasons. So um, I, to be honest, just going out in public was just kind of scary for a while. Um, and it's something we took very slowly. Um, but uh, just recently, we've been kind of, I guess... I hate the term church shopping because it makes it sound very superficial, but we're, we're in a phase of, um, attending different groups around our city. Uh, sometimes we'll even just see, see what it's like on the virtual understanding that that's, you know, we're not going to attend a local church where we never meet someone else that goes there. Um, but just to get a sense of what we're doing, I think we're also a lot more wary about volunteering to be musicians at the next church. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a slow process to be honest, um, in ways that I can identify that are like, I probably should have taken it faster. Um, but also I've, I've learned what, uh, what community means outside of a church setting, um, which I've honestly found very valuable is to like learn what that can be like, um, Though I very much do miss having a church community. So that's it, kind of in process right now. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to um, yeah, answer some questions, share your experience, and uh, just, yeah, contribute to, to, to our podcast. And yeah, we thank you so much. And we hope that it was uh, enjoyable for you as much as it was for, for myself. And Tyler, I presume it was enjoyable for you as well. I don't want to speak for you. I hated every minute of this. Yeah. All right. I, that's what I guess. There's, this, but, you know, I there's the disagreement to. we were waiting for. <laughs> Man, could you imagine if you started rating every guest on a five-star scale after they <laughs> ah, left? <laughs> we'll do that. We'll do that in the, uh, in the wrap up for, for this series. We'll, we'll rate every guest. Yeah, we'll oh, give better everybody yet, a rating. We have every guest back on to, uh, Oh. Utter their grievances about us. Here's the honest feedback. Oh, yeah, that could be good. Yeah. yeah, that could be good. That would be a moment um, for sure. Um, if I yeah. may, before we, um, I actually wanted to thank you guys for this project. I was introduced to you recently, to be honest, but I have since uh, binged a number of episodes of yours of songs that I, uh, I currently like and that mm -hmm. I used to like, um, <laughs> and your your method of paying attention to the lyrics is honestly um, the way I can liken it. It's, it's like somebody finally, I remember the feeling being in high school of someone actually teaching me how to study the Bible on my own and being like, Oh, the barrier to entry isn't that hard though. Um, and I, I just, the way you guys model every review for a song, I think gives very practical, um, a, a very practical framework for people to listen to a song, be charitable, but also critical and really like dive into the moments. I mean, even the experience of putting together my notes for the song we're about to review, going through line by line and saying like, this reminds me of this verse in scripture or this, like I might have a problem with this specific line. I think that, uh, yeah, I think those skills are valuable and I think you guys model it very well. So mm. 
Thanks for saying that. Yeah, you now get five out of five polka dotted <laughs> shirts. So <Yes>. congratulations. <laughs> Locked it down. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a shirt that is identical to that. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, listeners, for... Uh, let me try that again. For what? <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> Thank you for nothing. Thank you for listening to the Worship Review. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Uh, we'll see you next time. Take care and goodbye. And shout out to our new contributor. You know who you are. Oh, yeah. We <laughs> appreciate you. We know who you are. You're... And we're coming for you. You've been listening to the Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>